Uh, so Philippians 1, beginning in verse 1, it reads like this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All right, did you find the book of Philippians? We are going to be looking at the book of Philippians for the next uh, several months. And so if you want to begin uh, the work of reading maybe a chapter or two of Philippians each week as a way of familiarizing yourself with the book, that would be, uh, that might be, you f might find that helpful as well as encouraging. One of the things we're going to be emphasizing as we make our way through the book of Philippians is recognizing that God calls us to a life of joy and gratitude. It's not addressed in every verse of the book of Philippians, but it's addressed in many of the verses of Philippians. And we want to recognize that the scripture teaches us that as Christians, we are not called to a spiritual life of mopiness. We might have seasons of mopiness. I don't have a problem with that. But overall, we're called to a life of joy in Christ, in particular, a joy in Christ through gratitude and thanksgiving. And so we're going to be spending a lot of time seeing how we can experience that. And one of the things we have to understand for the Apostle Paul, for the Scripture communicated through Paul by the Holy Spirit, joy and gratitude are not found or accomplished by particular circumstances or people or things in our life. We might say something like, sure, I would have joy and thankfulness if I had a new car or if I had a new house or a new neighbor. And these are circumstances. You might experience some joy and gratitude for a temporary time from these things. You might uh, get a new job that provides maybe a greater income, a more satisfactory work. And so for a time, you would feel joy and gratitude. But that will not last forever because that's a job is not designed to provide those things forever. The question becomes for us through the scripture is how do we experience joy and gratitude that can be true regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in? In particular, for Paul, we have to recognize that he's writing the book of Philippians while chained to Roman guards. This is a letter that was written from prison, and it wasn't one of his cushy prisons where he was living in Caesar's house. This was a prison where he would have had one hand chained to one guard and one hand chained to another guard. And this would have been a very difficult time. And so we can recognize we have joy and gratitude even 
uh, when our circumstances might not otherwise provide for. This morning, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. 1 and 2. And you say, well, how can you do a sermon on two verses? I said, I don't know. But I decided to expand it from just one verse to include. No, I'm kidding. Verses 1 2. Let me just read them again. It's a greeting. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You might consider this, you might say, well, this seems like somewhat of a standard greeting. It's a normal greeting for the Apostle Paul. He's just, he's writing, dear Philippians, and it's a standard greeting. But it, in many ways, it is somewhat of a standard greeting, but it is unique enough that we have to take some time to understand what Paul is trying to communicate. And the primary thing we need to recognize from this greeting, especially as we proceed into the rest of the book of Philippians, is this. Paul says this, we know God. Paul and uh, Timothy, servants of Christ, saints in Christ, grace and peace from God our Father. Paul is approaching his relationship with the Philippian believers and his joy and gratitude in reference to the fact that he knows God. So the title of our message today is We Know God, and I want to show us three particular ways in which we need to have our knowledge of God and relationship God, with God as a reference point. Say you run into a friend of yours in town, and you're chatting and you're talking to each other, and you discover you know the same person. Say, oh, you know Jim too? Oh, wow, I had no idea you know Jim. How do you know Jim? So did you hear the question we j I just asked? How do you know Jim? What I want to establish, you, you and I both know Jim, but our assumption is our connection with Jim is different. And everybody say, well, Jim is my boss. He said, how do you know Jim? Oh, Jim is my brother-in-law. So we both have a different approach. Well, I, I know Jim in a different way than you do. My assumption would be you're going to approach Jim as your boss different than I am going to do uh, Jim as uh, a brother-in-law if I were to fill Jim's toilet with jello. As a brother-in-law, that would be expected. Anticipated, in fact, disappointing if it wasn't done at some point in our relationship. <laughs> I honestly have no idea where that came from. But, but Jim, the or the employee, if he were to do that, it might put his job in jeopardy, right? So that the terms of the relationship, the reference point of the relationship, is what determines how that relationship is navigated. How do you know them? Look at how Paul knows God. Paul and Timothy, what? Servants of Christ Jesus. So he's telling, you know Jesus? Well, so do I. How do you know Jesus? I am his slave. So he's telling the Philippian readers right off the bat how he refers to his relationship with God. And we would understand this. We know God as servants. We know God as servants. Now, let, I need to be uh, straightforward with something. That, that term there would be better translated slaves because it's a slave that owes their entire being, their entire existence to their master. But the reason our English doesn't translate it that way is because it's filled with all kinds of incorrect connotations coming out of the uh, horrific uh, slavery we had in our country. And so on the one hand, it's a little bit empty to translate it servant. On the other hand, if we translate it slave, most of us as Americans are going to think of the wrong thing. But this is a humiliated, completely dependent, master-owner-servant relationship that Paul is referring to if somehow we can remove from our mind the undignified uh, nature 
of slavery as we understand it. So here's the basic point Paul is trying to make. We know God as servants. We relate to God as servants. That is our connection with God. This is true in particular because God related to us as a servant. And we're going to see this later when we get to Philippians chapter 2. Jesus humbled himself and became a servant. So we are relating to God as servants because Christ related to us uh, as servants. And so he's writing this letter to his friends, and he's saying, you and I together, we have something in common. We all relate to God as servants. And this is particularly important because oftentimes Peter, or Paul in his letters would refer to himself as an apostle, an apostle of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. You'll notice in Philippians there is no reference, especially in the greeting, to his title. He wants the community of believers to come together and say, we know God as servants. So what's the authority structure in terms of hierarchy among the believers? There is servants and there is God. And so he is coming in and saying, we all together are relating to each other, but primarily, especially relating to God as servants. We are co-laborers who belong to Jesus. We know God as servants. So what are a couple of things we need to recognize is true of servants? Number one, the purposes of the master are the highest priority. If a servant is a faithful servant, the purposes of the master are the highest priority. A servant doesn't do the master's jobs when he can fit it into a schedule. The servant doesn't do the master's job if it gives him a cool, I did something good vibe. The servant does the master's priorities because he serves the master, and the master's purposes are supreme. And in fact, what's unique about service to Christ is the master's priorities are the other servants. And so therefore, in relationship with one another, we serve the master, Jesus, as our highest priority. And the primary way we do that is by serving one another. That's his supreme uh, priority. Okay, let's flip over to Philippians 2, two excuse me, Philippians 2. Uh, verse 5, I just made reference to it, so let's read it. Philippians uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. I'm only going to read a few verses here, but this is how we get our understanding of servanthood. Have this mind, this attitude, this perspective among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So what he's saying here, I want you to have the same attitude that Jesus had. I want you to have the same attitude towards one another that Jesus has towards you. And so you say, what was his attitude? I'm glad you asked. Verse 6, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus had this attitude. Being God, he did not grasp onto his glory. He said, I will come in humiliation to serve humankind to bring them salvation. So what's Christ's attitude towards the other believers you know? To humiliate himself in service to them. That's his perspective. 
He's going to humiliate himself to serve those who don't deserve it. So how do I have the attitude of Christ? The best way to do it is look for people that don't deserve my help and help them because Jesus helped me. Because we know God as servants. And God's priority is my priority if I'm a servant. If God's priorities aren't my priorities, I might be a, not be a ser- I might be a servant, I'm just not living as a faithful servant. And so we know God as servants. I, just real quick, how do you evaluate in your mind if you know God very well? How do you evaluate that? Is it, well, I haven't done any of the really naughty things for a few days? Is it, I read my Bible a couple times this week? Is it, I listen to Christian radio on the radio station? Is it, I don't swear that much? I don't swear when people are around. I don't swear when the wrong kind of people are around. I don't know. I could swear when they're... I, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out when you how, you... how you do this. How do you know if you know God? And here's what Paul, Paul is saying. Uh, we know God as servants, and the prim- one of the primary ways I know God, I experience close and connected relationship with God, is to serve other people who don't deserve it. That's one of the primary ways we experience our relationship with God. The purpose of Christ is servitude to obey the Father by serving others. As the Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't because of our great potential Christ died for us. It was while we were still sinners Christ died for us. So then as servants, we approach our service to others in the same way. While they are a pain in my neck, I will serve them. Not when they stop being a pain in the neck and so therefore deserve my service. We know God as servants. And Paul calls himself, really his job title, is servant of Christ Jesus. Now we have to recognize that Paul on the one hand understands this as humble service to others. On the other hand, this is his point of glory. He is serving the king of the universe. And so he accounts it to himself by God's grace. This is great glory that he finds himself in the employ of the king of the universe. So this is, on the one hand, humble. On the other hand, this is where he finds his glory, which is in Christ. We know God as servants. How do we have joy and gratitude? It seems counterproductive. We find, will find, profound joy in our relationship with God by living as servants of Christ, which means we live as servants of others. Serving and seeking to provide and help those around us who don't, uh, who don't deserve it, and we discover great joy in that. And you say, well, when God provides me joy, I'll have enough resource to serve others. So God, if you, but that's not how he does it. He says, you actually discover great joy when we humble ourselves and serve others. Another way we might put this, joy will never be found in being a servant of self. Joy will never be found when the point of my life is to serve myself. It seems counterproductive we think, or counterintuitive. We think if I supply all of my needs, if I pursue all of the things I want, certainly I'm going to feel happy, I'm going to feel contented, I'm going to feel joy. And the Bible says, no, 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 it actually is the reverse of that. When I step away from myself as a priority and put others as uh, serving Christ as a priority, I discover great joy. We know God as 
servants. All right, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Let's move along to the second part of verse 1. Look what it says. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, I didn't clarify this earlier. Just make, we understand Philippi is a city. It's not a procedure to get stuff in a pie. I just want to make sure we're on the same page. I, some of you are going, Philip, okay, whatever the Bible said, apples it is. All right, to, that was ridiculous. I'm sorry. All right. <laughs> to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, we have to understand this. Fundamental to our connection with God is relationship with others. Fundamental to our connection with God is relationship with others. We know God as servants, or secondly, we know God as community. The Bible word for this is church. Fundamental to our connection with God is relationship with others. Think yourself, there's two kind of buses you can think of. One is a city bus. The city bus is going around, it goes to different spots, but you find yourself on the bus. And what you have is a bunch of people, the thing they have in common is they are on a bus, okay? Another kind of bus, though, would be a group of friends who charter a bus, say, to go on a trip together, right? Now, the vibe on that bus is going to be totally different, isn't it? Because they're not just on a bus, they're on a bus going somewhere together. And we know God as a community, and that is the point of God calling us together as a body of believers. We are going somewhere, but we're not just all happen to be in the same room. We are going somewhere together. And that's what he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, with the overseers and deacons, our identity is primarily not, primarily not as a person of Christ, but throughout Scripture, our identity is primarily as a people of Christ. Now, as American Christians, it drives us nuts. We are uh, individuals by culture. We are individuals who get together and do things together, uh, like go to the movies, where we get 400 people into a room, Nobody talks, and you look at a screen. And I have a problem with that, but that is fundamentally how we operate also as believers. Everybody in the same room, but nobody together. And the Bible sees it completely different. We know God as a community, a relational community together where our, our primary identity is in God as God's people, not as an individual. Look over at Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Acts chapter 2. Uh, verse, <clears throat> excuse me, 36. Peter here is preaching a sermon. I'm not going to read the whole sermon because it's really long, not like my sermons. Um, I knew that would get a laugh. This is the end of Peter's sermon. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 36. He's sort of coming to the point. He's landing the plane. His application is this, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So this is the point of his sermon. You killed God. How did they respond? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Good, that's a great response. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. All of these personal pronouns are plural. These are people in a generation that has killed Christ. Repent and be baptized, all of you, in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who... Uh, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So the promise is this. Seek the Lord, uh, repent, and he will provide you salvation. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying this. Listen closely. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. That's a key verse for what I'm, the point I'm making. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. This is a theme throughout Scripture. Genesis to Revelation. We can be in one of two places. We can be among the people who are under a curse, or we can be among the people who have been saved from the curse. We can be among those who are under judgment, or among those who have been redeemed. And Peter is saying this, you all come out from the cursed generation that says Jesus is dead, and instead come into the generation, that community who says, Jesus is alive and we are forgiven. Move from judgment into redemption. And so what he is saying here to people who are just coming to know the Lord, fundamentally, you don't come to know the Lord by yourself. You are saved from a lost community into a redeemed community. The point from the beginning is connection with Jesus Christ in relationship with the redeemed community. We know God as a community. You say, why are you making such a big deal of this? Because we don't want to. People are a pain. Is, now I feel bad. Is it just me? <laughs> Not everybody is a pain, but people are funny because they think different than me. All, everybody would be great if they would just do and act and think exactly the same way as I do. And they have the gall to have their own opinions and their own thoughts. And, and so what we say is, you know, it would be just either, it just, it's just me and Jesus, baby. It's just me and Jesus. And the Bible has no category for that at all. We can thank the Lord for that, because if Jesus would save us to only have connection with him, he would have had no reason to come save us, because he comes and saves people not like him, so that we will relate in a redeemed way to people not like us. We know God as a community look at a couple of things back philippians chapter 2 second part of verse 1 to all the saints in christ jesus saints uh, that's a fancy word really a better way to translate it would be holy ones holy ones we need to understand in the bible if you are saved that is you have the holy spirit residing in you you are a saint you are one holy in christ you do not need somebody to make you a saint a, a tribunal doesn't have to be called. A committee doesn't need to be formed. We don't need to vote on it. We don't need to burn papers in a stove and have a white puff of smoke come out. I don't know, what, whatever it is. We don't. How do you become a saint? You have the Holy Spirit residing in you. How do you get the Holy Spirit to reside in you? You put your faith in Christ for salvation. Everyone is a holy one in Christ when they put their faith in Christ. Even that one guy who struggles with that one sin that's really bad. He also is a saint, a holy one. 
The community of believers are holy people. Look how it says that's possible. In Christ Jesus. There's two ways we are holy in Christ Jesus. Number one, when we put our faith in Jesus for forgiveness, we find ourselves holy in, that is, residing in God himself. God brings us into relationship with him, and we are holy because we are in the, in the, um, in the, where God is. God makes us holy. But not only that, we are holy by means of Christ Jesus. We are holy because uh, God accepts us, and we are holy because Jesus has made us holy. We bring to the table our sin. We are therefore not holy. Jesus dies on the cross, sheds his blood for our sin. When we put our faith in him, our sins are completely washed away, and we are made holy. Our holiness is defined by the person of Christ. Get this, it is not defined by your behavior. In Christ, we can behave poorly and still be holy. Does that make any sense at all? That's good. If it was done the way that made sense, we would have to earn our holiness, and that would be a tragedy, because we're not good at earning holiness. So, we are God's people. All who are in Jesus are made holy. In fact, we are called the holy people of God. If you are here this morning and you are in Christ by faith, you are among the holy people of God. That is, those set apart for God and made clean of their unrighteousness. We are saved out of judgment into holiness. Secondly, though, we have to recognize we are God's holy people. We are not holy, made holy to serve our own purposes. We are made holy that is set apart for God's purposes. Holiness is, again, just a fancy word of saying set aside for a particular purpose. And in this case, we're set aside for God's purposes. So everyone who is in Christ by grace has been made holy by the blood of Christ, set aside for his use and cleansed from our unrighteousness. Now look what it says at the end of the verse. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So this is kind of interesting because this is the only place his greeting also mentions the leadership of the church. And these are the two primary leaders we see in the church. We see overseers, which are folks who serve in the role of elder uh, in a body of believers. In our church, we have elders, some who are on staff and others who are not uh, vocational or don't uh, work here as their employment. We also have deacons. So he's saying these groups of people also among and with the people. Here's why this matters. He is saying to the saints in Christ who are in Philippi, along with or among with the overseers and deacons. I don't know how to say this clearly. That assumes I know how to say other things clearly. So I apologize for making that assumption. He's saying, he's saying this in such a unique way. What he's saying is, the leaders, the elders or overseers among you. There's another way he would have said it if it was a authority hierarchy. But he said this in such a way, he's saying, here are, I'm, I want to greet the holy people and among you, also those who have a role of service through leadership. What he is doing here with the way he has phrased this is he's taking this, what we might view as a church hierarchy and just flatten that out. I might suggest he's saying this in a particular way. He's saying, 
all of us are servants of Jesus, the lowest of which, elders and deacons, also among you, greetings. Because the leadership in the body of Christ is always flipped upside down. Christian leadership is like Jesus, which means whoever gets to the bottom is in charge. That's the idea. Who died to the bottom? Who can do the worst job the fastest? Is the goal of uh, leadership in the body of Christ. And he is emphasizing this here. He's saying, to all the saints in Christ, among whom also I want to send greeting those whose job is to serve Christ by serving, in particular, the body of believers. Very intentionally, he's saying here, we know God as a community of believers, not we know God through our priest. We know God through our elder. We know God through our pastor, our deacon, um, our Sunday school teacher. He's, no, 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 no. That guy's under you. That person is below you. His job is to serve you. You know God as a community of believers, and if we are so fortunate to have servant leadership, we also have uh, elders and deacons who seek to serve us in Christ-like humiliation. All right, let's continue on. Just one quick question just to annoy you. I feel, I, that's one of my primary jobs. <clears throat> to I, be identified with Christ is to be identified with Christ's people, his holy people. If I can put it this way, and I don't, I don't mean to be, uh, no, I do. I do mean to be irritating. To neglect Christ's people is to neglect Christ. There's not another way to do that. To neglect relational community together is to neglect Christ. And we need to, I only say that because, again, we're fighting against our, our individualistic culture. All of us are wired to want to be on our own. That's the air we breathe. And we need to allow the gospel to creep into our, our hearts and say, okay, I need to get out of individualism and make connection with others we know god what are the what is it? we know god as servants we know god as community and finally we know god by his grace look at verse two grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ so we relate to god as servants and he relates to us as he gives us his grace which leads to uh, peace Think of it this way. You might have somebody you know, and you have a point of commonality. So, excuse me, say, say you have a friend you, you have, and you, you say, well, why are you friends? And usually there's a point of commonality. Well, we're friends because we, uh, we have similar interests. We, we both like to golf, we both like to hunt, or we both like to fish. We have similar interests, and so those things lead, have led to uh, a friendship. Or, or you may have similar professions. We're in the same profession, and through just a lot of different connections, we end up spending a lot of time together, and because of our uh, professional connections, we ended up being good friends. So the question then, why do we know God? What is that point of commonality for our relationship with God? And the Bible tells us this, we know God because he has grace. The point of commonality between God and us is this, he brings grace, which is convenient because we need it. Our commonality with God is this, we are sinners and he brings grace. We have salvation, which needs to be accomplished. As one old theologian put it this way, God brings everything to salvation except for the one thing only we could provide, which was our sin. So the point of connection between us and God is grace. It will always be grace. It will always be undeserved grace. From the moment of your salvation to the day of your death, you will relate to God 
only and because of his grace. To relate to God in any other point, in any other way, is to miss God. The only way we know God, the point of commonality we have with God is grace. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You know it, but I'm going to turn there because when I try to quote verses from memory up here, I commit heresy. I always remember them wrong. I don't know what it is. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you have it memorized, but I'm going to read it nonetheless. I think it might also be up on the screen. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. You have been saved by grace through faith. So grace is what which that which provides for our salvation, and we trust that God is a God of grace. Grace is not a complicated concept. It's just something we don't like. Grace is just simply this. We don't deserve God's favor, and he gives it to us anyway. The nature of God is he is a God who is gracious. It is his nature. And the terms of our ongoing relationship with God is grace. So we aren't merely uh, justified by grace. That is the moment of our salvation we experience the grace of God. We are also sanctified by grace. Our ongoing walk with Christ from salvation to our funeral is a function of God's grace, not your ability to do good things and not do bad things. Our relationship with God is completely defined by grace. His grace is how we uh, know God. He gives us grace to overcome sin. Maybe God has been so kind to you that there are a few things you used to do that you don't do anymore, right? You've overcome some sin. You've picked up some other habits, but you know, let's, take, let's call a win a win, right? What, is that because you were just Captain Tough Stuff that you overcame those sins? Well, you think it's because of an accountability group or because of your discipline or your habits or whatever it might be. You think you overcame sin because you're, you're good at overcoming sin? No, you overcome sin because of God's grace. If it weren't for God's grace, you would still have that problem in 10 others, right? There are plenty of sins that you don't struggle with because God knows you couldn't handle it and he just makes sure that temptation doesn't show up. And you say, well, I've never seen that. Yeah, I know, because he's that nice to you. And then the guy next to you struggles in that area, and we turn up our religious nose at him like he's got his problems. And, and God is saying, listen, buddy, I keep you completely out of the way of that because you couldn't handle it. It's only God's grace that allows us to overcome sin. It's only by God's grace that we can know and understand his word. It's only by God's grace that in times of great need we reach out to him in prayer. We don't get credit for any of these things. What we get is God's grace over and over and over again. Grace are the terms of our ongoing relationship with Christ. Grace to you and peace from God. These two concepts are unable to be disconnected. I might even say it this way. If we are not experiencing God's peace, it's because in some way we need to recognize better God's grace. Because when we are resting in God's grace, we experience peace. 
And when I look in my heart and find anxiety and fear and a lack of peace, it's because I've improperly thought about grace. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. God is, by definition, gracious. Okay, just a couple of things to uh, wrap. I'm going to wrap up with this. A couple of questions to help think about this. We know God as servants. We know God as community. And we know God by his grace. First question, ask this. What part of knowing God do you find the most frustrating? Now, I know we're in church, and you're not allowed to think of knowing God as frustrating, but nobody's going to, you don't have to write it down. Or if you do, cover it so the person next to you can't see it. What part of knowing God is most frustrating? Man, I just don't like that part. Okay, I like everything else. Just this one part, I don't like. Now, what is, what, when you look at what it means to know God, what is that one thing is just, man, I know I'm supposed to do it, but oh, irritating. I don't know what it might be. I don't know. I can think of a number of things. You guys did pretty good today. You showed up for church. Of course, it's rainy out, so what else were we going to do, right? Okay. Maybe, so maybe it's our, maybe, gosh, Sean, I don't get it. I don't, even, I don't understand the deal. Why do we have to show up here? What's the point? Maybe we find that frustrating. Um, maybe it's forgiving others. So while I know in relationship with God, I'm supposed to forgive others. Well, it's kind of annoying. It'd be a lot easier to forgive other people if they would at least recognize how much effort I'm making to accommodate their lameness. So maybe you find that frustrating. Maybe you find it frustrating, the, the whole don't sin issue. Like, you know, okay, I struggle with a little sin. I'm not struggling with any sin that would put me in jail, so I think I'm doing okay. Right? So we think, well, maybe that's frustrating. So here's the thing. When we look at those parts of following God, we say, I know this ought to be, but I don't like it. What we ought to be able to recognize is, I want to define what walking with God looks like. How do we know God as a servant if I want to approach God on my terms? What a servant does is says, I know what I want, and I know the way I would do this. The question is, how would God approach this relationship? How would God approach sin in my life? How would God approach uh, knowing him through his word? And what he's calling us to do is do what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is say this, not my will, but yours be done. And that can be difficult to do. What part of knowing God that you say, I know this is supposed to be a part of my life, but it just, I just don't like it. That's an opportunity to say, Lord, how do I become a servant, even in these areas that I find frustrating? Here's another question, again, just because I'm trying to be irritating. What would happen to your relationship with God if you never went to church again? And here's what I'm getting at. You say, well, that's weird. Here's the question, though, when it comes to relating together as a community of believers. What if I never went to church again and my relationship with God was fundamentally unchanged? What does that mean? It means I've mistaken attendance for relational community. And there's a difference between the two of those. When we say we know God as a community, that's not merely a question of who showed up and when. That's a question of who knows my heart and can call me into account with Christ and his grace. 
If we are going to know God as a community of believers, you don't have to know everybody is your best friend, but you ought to know somebody well enough that they can challenge you when you need to be challenged. They can encourage you when you need to be encouraged. And we should be willing to stake our Christian life on someone else in relational community. We don't like to do that because we don't like to depend on others, and we don't like to seem needy. But if we are going to know God as a relational community, it means I have to take the time and put in the effort to know people well enough that we can encourage and strengthen one another in Christ. A couple more questions. I know you want me to end, but I'm not going to. I'm trying to be that irritating person where you have to show grace, so you're welcome. Here's another good question about God's grace. It's critically important. Do you feel, and that's an emotional question, so guys, you can squirm, I don't care. Do you feel God's love even when you sin? When you fail, do you feel God's love? Here's another way of putting it. Theologically, do you think God still loves you when you are sinning? Yes or no? You have to answer that. You have to figure that out. If his love ends when my sin begins, his love will not last. We misunderstand God's grace if we think we have to refrain from something to keep his love showing up. His love never ends even when we struggle in sin. Grace to you, Paul would say. Grace to you, Jesus would say. I know you still sin, he says. I still love you. Are you okay with that? Can you handle that? Can you say, I just blew it and Jesus still loves me? I've said it this way just to tweak you. And again, my job this morning is to irritate you. Does Jesus go on break when you're in your sin? Do you like grab a pack of cigarettes and go outside? Like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm heading out. Didn't know we were going down that road. No. He died on the cross. I think he has a pretty good concept of how, your offense, how offensive your sin is. The presence of you in your sin is not going to offend him. He's been on the cross for that sin before. In order to experience the love and grace of Christ, in order to experience the joy and gratitude God provides, we must be willing to accept his grace as it is. He loves us even in our sin. Now, by his grace, he's going to call us out of it. But to say his love fails when we sin is heresy. And we must not let the enemy deceive us. Jesus loves us even in our failure. Last question. Peace of God. Do you have the peace of God? Now, this is for those of us who don't know or recognize we don't have a relationship with God. I'm just going to throw an idea out here for those of us who aren't in Christ and you never put your faith in Christ for forgiveness. Just throw an idea out there for you to sort of chew on. All of us are looking for hope. All of us are chasing down happiness. All of us are chasing down a sense of peace. The question just is how are we chasing that down? At a certain point in your life, you're going to realize this world offers nothing that provides permanent hope, happiness, or peace. So if this morning you say, well, listen, I don't need this Jesus stuff. All I want to throw out there is this idea. When you have finally gotten everything you thought would bring you hope and peace, would you please be willing to revisit Jesus? He is the only one who can provide it. 
might just throw another add to that. You might want to do that before he comes back. Because the Bible says we have one time to get this straightened out with Christ through faith, and it's before he returns. So if you're chasing, and listen, this, this is something we all know. We have tried a million different ways to find peace and happiness. They have all failed us, and so our answer is always, instead of running to Jesus, we say, well, then I'll try this over here. It, it won't work. Find peace in Christ alone. We know God as servants, as a community, and by his grace.